Welcome to GLF Live, a podcast from the Global Landscapes Forum. Africa is facing its biggest development dilemma yet. On one hand, it's one of the most vulnerable parts of the world to climate change. And on the other hand, it needs huge amounts of energy to be able to lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in the decades to come. So should the continent continue to invest in fossil fuels, or is it time to focus solely on renewable energy? That's what we're asking our two special guests for today, an activist from Uganda and an energy transition expert from Kenya. Here's what they have to say. So welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Irini. Um, uh, on behalf of the Youth and Landscape Initiative and the Global Landscape Forum, we are sending you all a huge, huge, huge welcome. Um, the Youth and Landscape Initiative is currently teaming up with the Global Landscape Forum to produce this youth-led live um, episodes. And today we're going to talk all about the just energy transition for Africa. We are very lucky to have uh, here with us uh, Hamira from Uganda, who is a climate and health activist working with the Rise Up movement and the Fridays for Futures uh, Most Affected Peoples and Areas chapter. And Davina, of course, from Kenya, who is the communication manager of the Global Women's Network for the Energy Transition and one of the participants of the GLF Young African Landscape Leadership Program for 2022. So we have two amazing women to take us through what a just transition means for Africa. Uh, welcome all. Thank you. Let us know in the chat where you're coming from and we are jumping right into the questions. So the first question I have for you, Amira, is if you want to tell me a few things about yourself, who you are, how did you get involved in the climate justice movement, and in general, say hi to our audience. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Amira Kosinje. I am a climate justice activist from Uganda. I did a bachelor's of logistics and transport, and initially I was going to pursue a logistics um Avenue, but also I have a story, a background growing up. Of course, my mom was a single mom, and also I saw her work with uh, people who lived with HIV and AIDS, and also the struggles single parents went through. And this, as a child, uh, gave me the urge or the need to always add some value into my environment, my planet, and to add some value to my people. Along the way, I've done a few projects here and there. When I was in my Form 6 vacation, I was training young girls. When I finished training young girls, I volunteered to train women to how to do micro-small scale farming. Uh, when I also started up a business that employs women and young mothers. So, as you see, I've been trying to do something to help my community and my people and also myself. Uh, but of course, with the prolonged sunshine and the drought that comes with it, we have seen that even the small projects we try to do to help our communities end up not actually working through and end up leaving our women even more devastated than they were before. Uh, and of course, like any other human being, uh, you read about it and you're like, why is my crop failing? Because I usually used to blame myself for failing. So I would read and see where they go wrong and all those things. And that's how I actually uh, came to know that this is actually climate change that is affecting my people mostly. And that's when I decided to start uh, venturing into, like, uh, teaching people actually more about the problem and not the symptoms. Because initially I've been treating symptoms the whole way. So I decided to start 
talking about the actual problem and how we can go about it instead of us just treating symptoms and remaining with the problem at hand. So right now I train new activists because I found out my voice alone cannot go very far and I cannot speak for all African communities. But if I train every activist to speak for their community, then initially our voice becomes louder and we all get to reach the policymakers, but um, at most also we get to train the young children in our communities to take care of their environment better. That way we, we teach them how to love the environment. So for now that's what I'm doing and that's a short story of that because I have very small time to be answering this. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this is a wonderful story, I mean, and it's really, really nice to see how you're, you know, um, your, your story ties back to, 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 to how you, you grew and you grew to, to, to love nature and want to do something for what's happening around you. Um, Davina, the same question goes to you. Um, who are you? Let us uh, get to know you. <laughs> That's a big question. Um, thank you so much for, for having me here today. It's amazing to see everyone in the, in the chat from different countries. So I'm Davina, as I've been introduced, and I'm here today. I'm the communications manager at GWNet, which is a global women's network for energy transition. Um, and when I'm not in my main job, I volunteer for an organization called The Floppy, and we're tackling, we're seeking to tackle plastic pollution within East Africa. Um, so how did I get into the energy sector? I would say I fell into the energy sector. I was never planning to enter it. Um, I was very into entrepreneurship a few years ago, um, and I would create content around these amazing interviews I would find around Kenya, and I saw an event invite for uh, a talk on women's energy entrepreneurship. Uh, this is something I'd never heard of, and I went and attended, and uh, in a one-and-a-half-hour session, I had learned how uh, disproportionate the effect of lack of energy access is on women and children, how... Um, how many women and how big the scale of the problem was affecting women and also how women could uh, be the solution to the energy access. Um, and from then, I dove into the world of energy. Um, right now, I'm focused on gender advocacy, so not a specific technology, but more about looking at increasing the participation of women within the energy sector, within the energy community. Um, so this is what I'm excited to talk about today, is what is the role of women? Um, yeah, so that's just a bit about you. Thank you so much, uh, um, Davina, for sharing that. And also, it's fun to say, you know, oh, I was not planning, but here I am. Sometimes this is the best way to go somewhere, right? Like that just, it's just the road that takes you there. Um, lovely. So it is, it's such a big pleasure for me to be holding space for you ladies here and hearing about the, the different things and your stories and your initiatives. Um, so I'm now curious to hear a bit more about, um, specifically your, your, uh, your work, uh, and very specifically about like the energy landscape and, uh, across Africa. So, um, Hamira, let's, let's start with you again. I'm wondering if you can give us in a nutshell, uh, a description of what is the energy reality um, across Africa. So what happens in Africa right now, we have almost 80% of people in the continent live without electricity, and that is like the major source of energy. And most of them find themselves depending on uh, coal deforestation to make charcoal and such things. And right now the energy 
what we actually have right now in the continent is less than what we are supposed to have. For example, um, access to energy will make or break the continent and effort to adaptation in Africa. Uh, access to energy will make or break the continent's effort to adapt against climate change, including adverse weather events, weather scarcity, and significant threats to livelihoods. However, Africans are getting the short end of the stick in the global race to combat climate change when it comes to energy. The promised financing to invest in reliable energy systems and adaptation is trickling very slow and and where it's needed most. Secondly, Africans could be handicapped if the global level policies designed to limit greenhouse gases, greenhouse gas emission and proposed timelines toward net zero do not take the continent's unique circumstance into account. Uh, when, I, like, when I said, I said 80% of Africans do not have access to electricity. And at a time where we're trying to make sure we invest in renewable energy or in, green, in, in greener energy such as solar and uh, hydro energy and biomass energy, it's uh, heartbreaking that most Africans cannot afford this type of energy source and this type of energy. And to us in the continent, who actually only contributes less than 4% of global emissions, that only means that uh, it's going to be a death sentence for us if we do not, uh, if we do not have a solution for the energy gap as soon as possible. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for um, describing so carefully what's what's the situation across Africa, um, and and for providing some numbers as well. It's it's quite interesting to to hear about that. So coming to you, uh, Davina, now I'm wondering you have a very specific niche around um, energy, which is working with uh, what does this mean for women. So can you give us an overview of what are the specific challenges that women across Africa face in regards to 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 energy? That's a that's an amazing question. And um, when I talk when I see challenges or when I discuss challenges, I see it in two main areas. First is in actually accessing the energy. And the second is in accessing the opportunities found in renewable energy. So when we're talking about accessing the energy, uh, studies have shown women will spend up to five hours a day collecting firewood for cooking. So five hours could be spent on school, could be spent on income opportunities, it could be spent on needed rest, but instead they're collecting firewood. And then once you have the firewood, once you have the charcoal, once you have the kerosene, and you're burning this in your home because women are the ones responsible in most African households for energy use, uh, you find 4 million people dying each year from household air pollution. And majority of these are women and children because they're in the kitchen, they're in the home, and they're inhaling these toxic fumes. So when it comes to accessing energy, there's a massive challenge. Uh, there's a massive barrier for women. Uh, but we don't like to only see women as a victims. We see uh, women as being part of the solution, of course. Uh, but then now when it comes to people being part of that solution, there are barriers in itself. Um, so we have this IRENA study that says 32% of the global energy workforce is women. And, and now we have a new study now focused on sub-Saharan Africa, 
um, by the IFC, which says in small-scale decentralized energy um, activities, energy systems, 37% are women. In large-scale utilities, only 22% are women. And when you see these numbers, none of them is 50%. None of them is equality. And there are many reasons for this. There are women who uh, face challenges in terms of cultural stereotypes. What is a woman's role in the workforce in terms of uh, familial responsibilities? It's still often the responsibility of women to take care of children and um, elderly people. So that leaves limited time to participate in the workforce. We have sexual harassment and violence in the workplace. It dissuades women. We have unequal pay. We have policies which are hostile towards women. Um, all of these are challenges because we do need women in the workforce. We need women innovating. But when they do try to, there's so many barriers towards it, and the numbers are they're not lying. So when you talk about women's challenges, look at them uh, in accessing the energy and then accessing the opportunities uh, for renewable energy. Wow, this is this was such an important intervention. I am I'm always very interested in hearing about the you know the intersections because sometimes we uh, say that the, the energy struggle, for example, is the same for the entire population, but then it's it's very important to to understand the other identities that these people are are bringing in the struggle. Um, and also, I really appreciate that you said that women is not just we shouldn't see women as victims. It's very important to understand that they hold a lot of power, being the main users of of a lot of this uh, of this energy. Perfect. And to set the tone for the rest of our discussion, I would like to ask um, both of you to give me. In a very short phrase, what does a just energy transition mean for you? Um, just to, you know, to set the scene of what is following. Uh, and let's start with you, Harima, again. Thank you very much. Um, to me, a just energy transition in Africa, in my own context, means every African should have access to clean energy for both heating and cooking purposes and lighting purposes. Uh, as well as industrial and economic use, irrespective of location, gender, country, race, because Africa has the highest potential of renewable energy. There are so many water bodies that can be used, uh, that can help us as a source of hydroelectricity. We have annual sunshine like that can help us with solar, and we have a lot of waste that can also help us with biomass. That means if done well and done properly, we can have the whole continent lighting 365 days a year, and with everyone having access to electricity at a very cheap cost, if we do everything right and have the labor and have the, every, like the people trained, the industries uh, brought here and the resources subsidized so that we can all afford them, that means uh, it becomes easier for us as well, even for can't access or can't afford the prices of uh, this renewable energy can actually get to access it. And for me, this is what I dream for my continent, a point where someone did have to cut down a tree to have to be able to make a meal for their family. They don't have to use firewood because we have enough sunshine to do that. They don't have to, yeah, to mention but a few. Thank you very much. Thank you. You have enough sunshine for sure. That's a very good point for many places across the planet. Um, and we don't need to, to, to rely on, on finite resources, basically. Um, Davina, what about you? What would be your understanding of a just energy transition for Africa? 
I think actually Hamira has said it all. It, everyone needs to have access to the energy and clean energy that doesn't harm them. And I think everyone also needs to be able to be part of the solution. Everyone's voice should be able to be heard. But I think Amira said it perfectly. Awesome. There is consensus among these two ladies then <laughs> about what is, we, we are done. We solved this. Like we know what the just energy transition should look like. Um, amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Davina. Um, now I'm, I wanted to move on a bit on the relationship between energy and the climate crisis, especially in the context of the Africa continent. Um, so according to, to all reports, basically, Africa is the place that contributes the least towards global emissions, with bigger emitters being USA, um, uh, Russia, China, the European Union, etc. But it is the place that is hit very, very hard by the climate crisis. Now, when people discuss about how to solve the climate crisis, we talk about decarbonization, net zero, um, and other um, discussions like this one. So I'm wondering, Hamira, uh, is this discourse relevant for Africa, uh, or should we be talking about something else uh, when we talk about Africa? That's actually a very lovely question. Um, well, the discourse on decarbonization and net zero isn't a conversation to focus on continent continent having contributed to, to focus on a continent having contributed to 4% of global greenhouse gases, it is quite important for such a continent to move towards net zero, but such a conversation, such conversations shouldn't be prioritized. Conversations on financing, adaptation, and ensuring technology transfer should be prioritized in such a continent. For example, right now, talking about net zero to countries that have contributed to less than 0.5% of CO2 emission. What are we reducing? What are we cutting? Innocent. We should talk about uh, loss and damage finance, climate finance, to adapt and mitigate and probably invest in more sustainable energy sources and more ways of, and more sustainable ways of living than putting us under the pressure of reducing emissions. What kind of emissions are we reducing? We should only be focusing on not investing in the old ways that the countries that developed before us invested in. And that is where the finance transfers come in, the prioritizing of where we invest and what energy we use in our economies and our industries where we grow them. So for me, I think that is a conversation for their own continent in the African context. I'm very happy of how, you know, passionate you are, if I can say that, because I, this is, also the understanding I'm having from having these various discussions with people that come from countries that have contributed the least to the climate crisis. So it's very important to be clear of what narratives are important uh, for, for, for people from these countries. And you made them super, super clear. So thank you about um, that. Um, and uh, Davina, coming then to you, um, we have seen recently different ideas emerging on what Africa's energy future would, should look like. So some people say that African leaders should really go and tap into the natural gas and um, oil resources that are abundant across the continent, while others say that African leaders, African countries, should instead focus on lifting people out of energy poverty through renewable energy investment. Um, so I'm wondering how will each path, in your opinion, affect the landscapes and the people, the people in the landscapes of Africa, and which path would you choose? <laughs> uh, 
that is not an easy question at all. Um, this is one of those really difficult questions, and it doesn't have this one straight answer. And I think what's really come from Hamira's response is the context, like contextualizing um, this problem. Africa is a continent with very many countries, and even within those countries, the landscapes are drastically different. We can't come and say solar for everyone will solve the problem. It needs to be very specific to each each area. And when you think like this, uh, you begin to see renewable energy is is the solution we should be working towards, sustainability. But the journey towards that is not really linear. Um, so one of the big issues is energy access, clean cooking. So we have a lot of solutions for clean cooking. We have uh, cook stoves that try to be more efficient with using firewood and charcoal. We have solar cook stoves which are being trialed. Uh, of course, electric cook stoves. And we have LPG. So in terms of scaling up clean cooking, LPG right now looks like one of the best options. Um, and governments need to look at what is best for their people. We have 4 million people dying every year because of household air pollution. And clean cooking is one of those uh, causes of household air pollution. And we have LPG, which emits, but it's minimal emissions, but it's an emission. So looking at both the life of a person and emissions from a continent which are already significantly low, what sounds better? For me, I understand that we need to do what's best for people. In this case, I would choose the life of the woman and the child. Um, it's not linear. We will go towards renewables, but that path cannot be dictated for Africa. We need to do what's best for, for Africans. Um, yeah, so that's just a bit about what I think. Thank you, and thank you for this wonderful sentence that you gave to the world, that this path should not be dictated for Africa, it should not be dictated for anyone, uh, and that context is very, very important. Thank you. These are very powerful words already at the beginning of this live. Um, I'm learning already so much from both of you. Um, now then, moving on the renewables discussion, um, that um, we, we want to learn more about what, what this means in the context of Africa, right? So, Hamira, um, according to a report by the International Renewable Energy Agency, renewables were the world's cheapest source of energy in 2020. Now, this is what this agency said. Why do you think renewables, not just in con the context of Africa, but in general, up to you, why do you think renewables are still so unpopular? And how do we address that? Uh, that's a very good question, and thank you very much. And like Davina said, we're not supposed to force countries or communities into a source of energy that they are not ready to abide by. And that also connects to my answer. Like For us in Africa, we're about 80% of our population are battling with energy poverty, poor technology advancements, depending solely on finished renewable energy sources from, of course, the global north, um, it will always seem very unpopular because over here it is expensive. People focus on ending food security, uh, ending, uh, climate, um, ending climate crisis, migration, climate migrants, people who are migrating from the places, ending loss and damage. People's energy needs focuses mainly on the heating and cooking energy, and deforestation can provide that. Only when most basic needs are available that people explore other, other needs. So um, why am I saying that? It's For us here right now, for example, in Kenya, I know, and also here in Uganda, we have uh, 
uh, a food crisis right now. And I'm sure all, most parts of Africa have their own things they're dealing with due to the climate crisis and impacts we have solely not created, but we're just facing a crisis someone else created and we have to deal with it. So if we have all these problems hitting us north, from all angles, it becomes very hard for us to think about, oh my goodness, we need to look at this, we need to save on this, we need to save on that. Uh, and also the fact that solar, most solar panels are, are manufactured from the global north. Most, most of this um, renewable energy material is manufactured from out of the continent. And when it's brought into the continent, for us, of course, I did business, so I'll have to know about money. It gets to become so expensive when it gets home. And while people probably in Germany are purchasing a solar panel for probably 50 euros, when it gets to Uganda, it will probably be like 150 euros. That is so much for a, for a person that lives on less than a dollar because the majority of our people live on less than a dollar per day. You cannot task that person to invest in renewable energy. So uh, for me, that is why it's very unpopular and because we cannot afford it, one, and two, because people have so many things they're dealing with and then renewables tend to look like a luxury. It's like owning, owning a luxury car, yet you can actually go to the forest and cut some wood and make food for your family. So you can't start thinking about renewable energy if you need you have children to feed and children take to school and they're sitting at home looking at you that's why i believe that's one of the major reasons why it's unpopular thank you this is this is a very important point to raise uh, and it also goes in hand in hand with the idea that this person that probably cuts one tree to cook it's not the problem right like this this person is really not the problem they are just trying to survive so even been pointing to them the climate crisis or any type of deforestation is inhumane and um, not supported by any logic. But thank you so much for being very clear about it. Um, thank, uh, Davina, moving on to you, um, let's let's think about, so, so for example, um, on a country level, if a country wants to invest, if there is a developing country, what incentives would countries need in order to orient themselves towards renewables instead of um, investing, for example, to, to oil or importing oils, for example, or importing uh, uh, natural gas from other countries? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. To me, the, when I look at the most obvious incentive for, for any government is job creation. Um, so we see renewable energy as a rapid job creator, and over the next few decades, projected that the jobs provided by renewable energy will grow. So these could be jobs in engineering, in marketing, in construction, in admin, in tech, and there's just so many options for jobs. And we live in a continent with such a high youth, uh, high youth population and such a high employment rate, um, specifically for youth. So I think job creation in itself should be uh, incentivized by governments. Um, but still, it doesn't seem like it is. Um, and one of the reasons for that is just the policy surrounding renewable energy. And I think at the policy level, there needs to be more incentivizers. Uh, so for oil and gas, we see so many subsidies. 
oil in itself is not cheap. It's the subsidies that make it so cheap for us to access it. Um, and if we can apply these same subsidies to renewable energy, then we can make it accessible. Because like Hamira said, if I'm, I have a choice of cutting wood or a choice of paying 100 euros for the solar panel, it's very obvious which choice I'm going to make. So at a government level, they should be making policies to make it cheaper. Um, at the same time, I think um, policies need to enable businesses to come and be competitive within countries. So right now we have policies on policies that tax imports of, of technologies which are really critical for renewable energy. And you ask yourself, what is the government thinking putting these taxes? Do they want to make renewable energy cheaper and more accessible to people? And so the policymakers need to if they really want renewable energy, it's very easy for them to make it accessible and affordable to people. Um, so it's it's basically putting mechanisms to make it cheaper, cheaper for people. That will incentivize and improve renewable energy within, within different African, African countries. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Davina. Um, and definitely subsidies is a, is a thing that comes back again and again, even to energy, but also when it comes to food production, for example, what is subsidized, unhealthy food is more often subsidized than like, you know, access to healthy food, etc. So uh, thank you so much for bringing this up. Um, and I see a connection between your two answers that can lead very nicely to my next question to, to Harima, which is... Um, most of the renewable technologies are patented in the global north uh, by companies in the global north. Um, and very often these patents are very expensive, for example. Uh, also, most of the technologies are being manufactured. And then, as um, Davina said, they are being said and sold. Uh, and as you said before, sold for very high prices. So how do we ensure technology transfer in terms of the knowledge and rights to actually make these technologies available to um, African countries, to African manufacturers, as opposed to you know, just bringing them in uh, from, um, from, from the global north? Um, thank you very much. That's, that's an interesting question. Um, so, for example, right now, of all of 10 of my friends, I have three of them being uh, oil and gas engineers. And I think it starts with us creating the labor, the labor market. Uh, when oil was coming to Uganda, so many people went, went into studying oil and gas engineering and all these things. And I believe if our policymakers and leaders could invent renewable engineers, renewable gas, like renewable energy engineers, probably biomass engineers, probably in our countries, we could have the job market or the labor market here at home. And then when probably a, a company wants to come and set up uh, work here, set up shop here, it will be, it's very easy for, for people to get jobs in these organizations. But I think also investors now look at it and they're like, there's no labor market. So uh, for me, it comes back to our leaders here back at home. Like the same way we have made all these, uh, these, these we have made so many people uh, professionals in different fields. I'm sure be, some years back there were no transport and logistics managers, but they, they came up with that uh, study, uh, school of thought and put a course there for us to study. It's the same way we should set up uh, oil and, I mean, renewable engineers, solar engineers. And this is where we have 
people actually come learn how to make these things when companies come and they set up shop here when someone works for them after a while they learn how to do it themselves and probably go on and make their own company and that's how it grows that's how business grows so if if i make if probably davina comes to uganda and sets up solar a solar shop here and teaches us how to uh what invent um, manufacture solar solar panels or the equipment we need for hydroelectricity or whatever energy we need here or wind energy and then probably by the time davina leaves the country at least five people have learned and they can set up five more companies and that in that way they are employing people we are uh, employing people but also providing cheap renewable energy to these communities that way um it becomes easier for Africans to also access the renewable energy but also like organizations like should we have to keep advocating and ensure that the CYNC CN CYCN mandates of ensuring swift transfer to technology in 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 Africa production should be brought into Africa and not ju- just imported into the country hence they will be cheaper and also provide sources of income and knowledge for so many africans that's what i was trying to explain we also need to build workforce by educating renewable engineers engineer courses and accessible accessibility to importation like we should that's what i was explaining in the beginning thank you Thank you. You explained it loud and clear and um thank you. Thank you for being very um clear with with uh with what you're saying. It's really really important. Education is key, training uh young people, giving them the access to the market and also giving them the access to choose and the ability to choose and letting them live their lives the way they want. Amazing. Uh okay, I would love to move on to the next segment of my questions which are going to be all about something you both are very familiar with which is climate justice of course and youth activism. You're all both young people even more especially young women navigating a space that can be really really harsh uh, the activism space. Before um asking more difficult questions, I want to hear from you in a nutshell, maybe in one sentence. What is climate justice in the context of Africa? And let's start with you again, Davina. Thank you. Uh in one sentence, um that's very hard. I think to be just a bit longer. Um I think probably with the food crisis with we're experiencing in Kenya it's very clear that we're not climate resilient um and as we've discussed before Africa contributes very little to the emissions but we're most impacted by the results of climate uh the climate crisis so for me climate justice is protecting the most vulnerable individuals giving them a platform to voice what is going on with their communities and holding accountable those who are most responsible for the situation we find ourselves in today beautiful yeah, more than one sentence but yeah no it was perfect <laughs> um what about you uh, harima what is your definition of climate justice in africa uh for me um for me climate justice is i want to look at it in terms of climate action uh on so many occasions and on so, so many times i've attended summits and when they talk about climate action 
they talk about action that actually does not work for us back at home like action that is super expensive like i keep saying for a country where 80% of our for a continent because i'm addressing now africa for a continent where 80% of our population feeds on less than a dollar per day you cannot put up things like electric vehicles things like as um all these expensive ways of living as a climate solution because to me that feels like greenwashing it's the same way total will say they're emitting 34 million tons a year with the eco pipeline and they plant 1 million trees among all like in that year to think that for me that is greenwashing and to me climate justice should be something that puts in consideration everyone and it should actually be on top of the list given that we only contributes less than 4% of CO2 emissions that means the impacts we are facing the droughts we are facing the flooding we see every day the landslides we see every day the hunger crisis the all these repercussions we are living with and impacts of climate change and the loss and damage we are facing is not our doing we are just people who are suffering more than the creators of this crisis so for me i believe while we are advocating or while we are decision makers are putting into action climate action or they are putting into action climate solutions they should consider communities that have little or nothing to do for, on the in regards to the climate change crisis and for me that is climate justice not setting putting africa aside and washing africa off agendas and putting loss and damage off agendas for me that is all climate injustice if you do not consider women children uh the poor people the less fortunate the people that are being uh displaced and being made uh, climate refugees because of uh impacts and a climate crisis they did not cause for me that is all climate injustice and anything that is not that is climate injustice for me Well, thank you both. I, th- I feel that our life could have been just these two answers and would have made a great, you know, uh, statement from today. I think uh, to sum it up for everyone, uh, we just heard that climate justice is not greenwashing and climate justice should put in the middle, uh, in the center, I'm sorry, all the vulnerable people without leaving uh, people on the sidelines or at the side events of agendas, etc. Beautiful. Um, Uh, Davina, coming back to you, because you first mentioned uh, the food insecurity and the food uh, crisis that currently Kenya is experiencing, as many other countries around the world are also going through the same. So I would love to hear from you a bit more on the connection between, you know, the, the climate justice and justice for food. So food sovereignty, uh, if you can expand a bit more. Yeah, um, I think food is, is one of the most complicated issues that we're facing as a continent in. Um, it's not my area of expertise, but from what I've seen is we've moved so far or we've been pushed so far as a continent away from how we produce food for our own selves. Uh, we've, we're starting to import. We've seen what the crisis in Ukraine did to so many of our countries and how the prices of wheat went up. And wheat is something that many, at least in Kenya, many of us rely on uh, to survive. So we've seen a, a, a food system which is so fragile. Um, and then what little we are farming is now being affected by sways in the climate. 
you have intense rain, you have intense drought. And that's what we're facing. Um, I see the potential of, of renewable energy as being able to help us adapt to this changing climate, but we can only adapt so much. We can't adapt to like 100 degree weather. Um, like Amira says, it's, it, after a point it reaches greenwashing. Um, we need people who've caused this problem to finance the adaptation, but we also need them to stop because we can't keep on adapting to a changing climate. Um, so for me, food sovereignty is like, it's a key pillar to climate justice uh, because if people can't eat, what, what else are we talking about? I, I literally started taking notes. Uh, we cannot keep on adapting on a changing climate. Um, and everything else you said are so, so important, especially as we are, you know, a few months away from COP27, where leaders are going to gather again and discuss about adaptation, mitigation issues, etc. So I hope that some people will, will listen to what you just said. Um, and coming to you, Hamira, now, I know, Harima, sorry, Hamira, oh, I'm confusing names now. Coming back to you, Hamira, um, I'm sorry. Um, I wanted to, to ask you a bit more on um, your role as an activist in the climate justice movement, because um, Elvis, for example, who should have been here moderating this, but due to technical difficulties, he is not, has explained to me that across Africa, um, at least in Uganda, where he's also from, um, activists, climate activists are very often seen as radicals or as people, you know, that they just want to complain. Um, and uh, we wanted to hear from you in a nutshell as a young climate activist. What are some of the activities that you are doing through the Rise Up movement, through the Fridays for Future for uh, most affected peoples and areas or any other of your um, projects? And let the world know what a climate activist is doing. My feelings are hurt a bit. I thought that was corrected by the Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, when he said, we are not radicals, the actual radicals are the people who continue every day investing in pollution and keep polluting and keep polluting the environment and the continent and the planet at large. But that being said and done, we are only people who are worried, one, for our future, two, for us who have nieces, nephews, sisters, we're worried for the kind of world they'll live in, and we love our planet that much, we don't want to lose it. That being said, uh, in the Rise Up movement, we have people with different projects, and we work on different projects. For example, we have the Bush Green Schools project that is that keeps working on uh, solar systems and better cooking stoves, and that is in the energy sector, and it gives that to schools. We have the Plus One Tree project where we give fruit trees to families. Uh, in Africa, I think Davina knows this, we value so much and treasure so much trees that give us food, and if we are to cut down a tree, the last tree to go will be the tree that gives us food, because, I mean, food that I want, just wake up in the morning and go and pick a mango from the tree and eat. So, we focus um, our efforts on giving out fruit trees, because that's where we're actually hitting two birds with one stone. We are, because the goal of, I, I, I didn't tell you the goal, the goal of 
why we strike and why we are activists and why we love our planet and why we advocate for uh, climate action, climate justice, gender justice, all these things. It is one thing to make sure we have a livable environment for all of us. We have a livable, we have food supply. And if we all know that the trees hold the soil together, so that soil is becomes a major carbon sink. That way, if we are giving out a fruit tree, when the tree grows, it provides food for the family that is having it. And then it is also providing a carbon sink. And for us, that is that in that way, we are contributing to reduction in CO2 emission. And we are actually, because uh, uh, the goal is to uh, grow the sinks and reduce other sources. And we are growing the sinks by planting more trees. So, and then we also have uh, the trainings. I think I do most of the trainings. Uh, we teach the next generation in schools and the women in communities on about climate change, how to go about it, how to reduce it, how to even make uh, things like briquettes from biomass and energy and cook with those, how to grow crops on their verandas and all these things. So this is how we are, what we're doing for our communities. And we're just a group, groups, a group of young people who don't even, who our parents would say we are unemployed, but we're actually doing this in the capacity we have. So the only reason we are activists and we strike and we want uh, people or leaders or policymakers to join us is if we, the ones that almost have no power and no resources, can do this much, if they join us, it would be a major, would do bigger things and greater things and there will be a better environment for our people. And we also have uh, someone in Rise Up, uh, Rise Up Kenya that does mangrove planting in Mombasa. And we also know mangroves are one of the, med the trees that make the best carbon sinks in the world. They are like the best trees to capture carbon. Uh, we have uh, someone in Nigeria, Rise Up Nigeria, who is also, who does... Uh, uh, biomass energy gets uh, re recycles plastics. So we do all these so many. Then we have someone in Rise Up uh, Congo who recycles old clothes and makes handbags out of them. So these are so many things we're doing and they are contributing. Then we have someone in FFF who actually we have groups of people in FFF who are fighting against ECOP because ECOP is going to be polluting 34 million tons of CO2 emissions per year. So we have all these people doing whatever they're doing in whichever corner of the continent that they are in. And in a way, like I said, our goal is to have a livable environment. When we're growing up, we had fruits. We no longer have those. We have to buy. You understand? So our goal is to have a more livable environment for probably people who are going to have children, for those who are who have nieces and nephews. We want them to live in a happier environment, a more livable environment, and not having to worry about uh, being burnt. I didn't know black people get sunburns and suffering of one. So all these things, we don't want those to be worries of our, the next generation. And we also want to teach them to love their continent and their planet better and care for it better. Thank you so much. I hope that this you know, will clear up the air even more that activists are definitely not complainers. They are most definitely people that 
are acting. It's there. It's there in the word. The word is beginning with the word act. So, yeah, uh, I mean, this is beautiful. And thank you so much for sharing. Uh, while you were talking, I'm just reminded of uh, a program we have uh, now running, the Restoration Stewards Program, which I can really see all of the people you referred applying for this program. So I will share with you that uh, later. But you, for everyone in the chat, you can also go to the Instagram of uh, GLF, the Global Landscapes Forum, and find the application there. But I feel we're going to have all Harima's friends uh, applying this year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> awesome. Okay. While we are waiting for Davina to come back, mm. uh, I want to, to come back to you with a question um, in regards to um, to the upcoming COP27 that is going to take place in Egypt. Uh, so what are some narratives you would like to see African leaders bringing to the COP27? And for anyone that doesn't know, COP27 is the big meeting that all the leaders around the world are doing. It's called Conference of the Parties, and it's where all the big decisions for climate policy are being made every year. So, yeah, what would be your your take on that? I just have a piece of information for the people that all the policymakers, um, and this is it. If we are to avert the climate crisis in Africa, a new deal must emerge out of Egypt that can uh, that must uh, that must transform the way we produce our food, though we choose what we uh, what we consume, the way we develop our infrastructure, including our cities, our, our roads, our housing, and our dams, the way we produce energy, and the way we value nature in our economic system. Farmers like those from Uganda, Kenya, and all other parts of Africa will also need access to the best available information, the best available science, the best available solutions, that is, the kind of deal the policymakers at COP27 owe us in Africa. They owe us a livable situation. They owe us climate finance. They owe us a loss and damage facility. They owe us a reduced or a, a no food crisis community. They owe us our girls going to school and having a future for themselves. They owe us a place without emissions by not investing in gas and oil and fossils. They owe us a safe continent for our people and our children and our younger people. They should show some love for our planet. They owe us that. Ah, thank you so much for these beautiful words, um, Hamira. I think it's it's really, really important for people to to realize that a lot of the things people like you discuss is really putting people in the center. Like very often people see climate activists as people that just love nature and they like flowers and animals, which is great to do. But uh, I know for, from your words, it all comes down to people having the, you know, the best lives they can have. Um, and indeed, let's... Let's see, maybe Egypt is a place where a new agreement will emerge. And um, a lot of people have dubbed this as the Africa COP. So let's see if it will stay true to its name. Um, I think we have a few, we have a, a problem with Davina. I think Davina's internet isn't stable. So I hope she will be able to 
Hi, Davina. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, so I had discussed the advocacy work we do. We also do our best to bring women together through networking activities, uh, just so that they have the same uh, support for their careers and also their personal journeys through the energy sector. But the biggest part of the work we do is around mentorship. So we've seen that one of the biggest challenges for women in the energy sector is not just joining, but advancing their careers. So mentorship is supposed to support with women who are looking to advance their careers within the energy sector. And we do this by connecting women who are junior or middle management um, with more senior experts, and they get the opportunity um, and insight into ways they could speed up their professional development. And we're running several programs. So we have women who are clean cooking entrepreneurs, women who are wind engineers. And what we've seen is women in one year can accelerate and become managers, become leaders, starting to open the door for other women within the energy sector, start to lead education programs within schools, start to expand their business and offer more energy solutions to their communities. So that is a core part of what we do. And I think mentorship, uh, we have formal mentorship, but I think mentorship is something that we can all do. We've all learned experiences. It doesn't matter if you've only been working for two years, three years. There's so much valuable information you can give to the next person so they don't make the same mistake, so that they don't face the same challenges. And if we can all do this, then it can be... That's fantastic. And I really love the part what you said about, you know, you can be working for one or two years. It's important to Um, also learn from that experts, right? We don't have to always look up to people that have 20, 30 years of experience. Probably a person that is just two years ahead of where we are uh, has more to offer in the sense of like they have been to our place very recently. <laughs> so they know what are our challenges, what opportunities are out there. This is amazing. I have one last question for you, Davina, and then um, we're going to close our conversation with a last statement from both of you. So my last question to you is, um, during our whole discussion now, both of you brought up finance uh, in the sense of like, for for um, African countries to adapt and mitigate the climate crisis and to address the food crisis and the interconnection of all these crises, uh, finances should be there. So how do we address the, dra- the the gaps in the financing of the transition to to adjust energy to ensure um, that technologies or policies or anything else that is needed? is not a privilege of just the rich people, either in the global north or the rich people within the African countries? Yes, um, that's a really good question. Um, I think the first thing, and Hamira had touched on this like really earlier on, is there has been money promised. This energy transition, this or this move towards renewable energy is quite expensive, and there has been a lot of money promised, mostly by the West, to, to support Africa's energy transition. Have we seen that money? I would say no. So people who promise the money, <laughs> we can start there, is to fulfill the pledges that you've made so that we can we can adapt uh, our energy infrastructure. Um, on our side, so for our African governments, is to create policies that are enabling for investments. We can't expect investments in the energy uh, sector in our countries and our government or our our environment is hostile to these businesses that are starting up, whether the investment is coming from outside or inside, the government can play a big role in just making it easier for people who are looking to provide uh, energy solutions. And I think the last thing is urgency from all sides. 
this is not a conversation we can continue we can afford to continue having thank you so much so in terms of financing this is, this is one major um, missing being kept and, and let's hope cop 27 will deliver this all these promises one way or another um thank you both for sharing your thoughts and thank you for being patient with our technical difficulties and thank you the audience for joining um before closing i would like to remind to everyone that we're having an amazing event GLF Africa Digital Conference 2022, How to Build an Equitable, Resilient Future, coming up in about a month on September 15th. We're going to hear from more young people on what they think um, Africa's food present and future should look like. Um, and we also are going to have a job fair for African young people that want to uh, enter the, the green job market, let's say, and learn how to to, to um, learn about opportunities in the environmental sector. Before closing, I don't want to be the last person that speaks, so I'm going to pass the ball back to Davina and Hamira uh, with a question on what is your call to action to policymakers or young people? You, you tell me to whom you are saying this uh, in the quest to achieve a just energy transition for Africa. And uh, Hamira, let's start with you. Thank you very much. Um, as we close today, actually, thank you for the opportunity for me to be here and pass on this message that I have had burning down my stomach for a while. Um, so for me to the leaders, uh, they need to remember that as they make the decisions, we younger generations are watching them and holding them accountable. They need to remember that a change in climate change is changing in everything. We cannot support human rights. We cannot separate human rights from climate justice and gender justice. To the world, we save more money if we act now. We save more lives if we act now. We protect more futures if we fight back now. Let us stop procrastinating and act now because the climate crisis is here. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you as well for, for the excellent moderation and Amira, I've learned so much from you. Um, for me, to policymakers, I would say that there is no more time for continued discussion. We need to act now, just like Amira said. We, yeah, we need to act now. Join us again in two weeks' time on the 16th of May as we dig deep to learn the secrets of the soil that sustains and nourishes us. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and countless other podcast platforms. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out. That's all for now. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.